Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you guys today. My name is Kale Kinchin, and I will be starting on staff next week as the new and future campus director and eventually pastor at our new campus in Timbergrove. If you don't know where Timbergrove is, don't worry, you're not alone. It is essentially in the northwest corner of 610. So if you live in the Heights, Garden Oaks, Oak Forest, Shady Acres, Washington Memorial Corridor, even if you don't, we would love for you to come talk to me, come talk to my wife Kim, um, and we can just let you know how you can serve, how you can help get us started at the new campus. So we're still planning on launching in the summer of 2019. So we have a picture of this is my family. So this is me, my wife Kim, and we have just welcomed our first child into the new world. Her name is Becca. She's about a month and a half old. I don't think that's a good enough picture of her, though. So be prepared. It's about to melt your hearts. I think we have one more slide. There she is. All right. There is Becca. So that's the best I got. So if that's not incentive enough to join us at Timbergrove, she will be there every single Sunday <laughs> worshiping with us. Um, but again, that's what we got. So we have been talking, Pastor Eric has been walking us through this series, what we were calling 40 Days of Wow. So we are going through our doubts and skepticism. By the way, 40 Days of Doubt, still on bookshelves now. It's Pastor Eric's book, makes a great New Year's gift. We've also talked about being above cynicism and how we can turn to Jesus for our sanctification and also just how amazing and wonderful it is that Jesus came down in order for us to depend on him. I thought it was appropriate coming into this new year, coming into 2019, to talk about newness of life and just give you a little bit about my story on how I found newness in Christ. I grew up in the church from early on in childhood, my memories were Sunday school, vacation Bible school, youth camps, even tolerating big church at times. But as I grew up, I became a hot and cold believer. One year, I'd had this awesome experience at camp where I'd have a pastor preach life into me, and I would be all in for Jesus. And then the next year, I'd stumble and I'd fall, and I'd convince myself that Jesus wasn't didn't really fit into what I was doing. I believed in grace, but I wanted Jesus in this nice little box that I could take him out of and show him off whenever I wanted to, but then I could pack him away and I could put him away when I felt like I needed to do that. That just led itself to me thinking that if I ever sinned, God was going to forgive me anyway, then what was the point of living this perfect Christian life? What was the point? I was going to sin. God was going to forgive me. There was no point for me in that. I had this notion that the ideal Christian life was just about following the rules and about not screwing up. It was just a selfish way to look at things, to think that I needed to control every single thing in my life. I thought that God wanted something from me instead of God wanting something for me. I just wanted God to be who I wanted him to be, full of love, full of grace, but without the truth and without the obedience. I didn't fully understand or comprehend what Jesus did in order for me to be redeemed. I just wanted God in my life 
for my own benefit. This scenario actually plays itself out in the Bible. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. It's a conversation between a Pharisee named Nicodemus and Jesus. Pharisees get a pretty bad rap in the Bible. We typically equate Pharisees to hypocrites. Pharisees were actually the leaders. They were the religious leaders, the religious teachers of the Jewish faith at that time. They were educated, hardworking, overachievers. They had high expectations of themselves. They were career-driven. They tended to be upwardly mobile. Doesn't that sound like us? So let's read what Nicodemus says to Jesus. This is John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Let's stop there quickly. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. So we know that there's a secrecy in this. We know that G- or Nicodemus is coming to Jesus to have this secret conversation or to have a secret dinner or whatever he's trying to do, but we know he doesn't want to be found out. Remember, this guy was already a rabbi in the Sanhedrin, and he comes to Jesus and calls him rabbi. He says, Jesus, you're doing all these wonderful miracles. We know they have to be from God. I think he's just telling Jesus what he thinks Jesus wants to hear. I think he's just fishing for a compliment, right? He's just complimenting Jesus in order to get a compliment back. He's just using this technique in order to get something out of Jesus. We don't know what it is, but we definitely know that he has ulterior motives in this. Nicodemus didn't come there for Jesus or even what Jesus had to say. He came them for himself. That's where I was. I wanted God to be this nice, agenda-fitting thing that I could use when I needed him, but then throw him away when it came time to chase my own happiness. The biggest struggle I had in my life was accepting God's authority in my life. I didn't want to be defined by Jesus. I wanted to create my own identity. I wanted to make my own path. I knew that if I fully followed Jesus, he would become the authority in my life, and I'd eventually have to be obedient to him. That's just not the way I wanted to live my life. Again, I just wanted to create my own identity. I would even justify that through the lens of, if God really loved me, then he wanted me to do what made me happy. If God really loved me, he wanted me to do what I wanted to do. Eventually, I'll get back to God. Eventually, I'll make it back to him, but just not right now. Now's the time for me to do what I want to do. I bought the lie that this world was selling. I chased after it hard, from chasing every party to trying to find happiness in relationships to basically trying to hide from God. I figured that if I was going to be forgiven, then I might as well go all out. Sure, God drew me back during those seasons, but at the first hint of separation, I would just throw it out the window. My faith was quicksand. I had no notion of the term self-control. I remember vividly back in this season of my life, I would pray to God and say, God, please keep my heart tender. Please don't turn it into stone. I want to give you my heart one day, but just not today. Please keep my heart tender so when I grow up or when I mature or when I start reading my Bible every day or when I start praying every day or when I get married or when I start a family or every single excuse in the book, I just felt inauthentic. I always thought that as long as I followed my heart, I would be good to go. 
but following my heart wasn't the solution. It was the problem. And the more that I followed my heart, the clearer it became that my heart was not worth following. The more and more I was following lies and deceit and selfishness and pride and lust and greed and everything else until I finally realized that it was time for a change. I knew that Jesus loved me, but did I really love Jesus? Was I really ready to follow Jesus, or was I just going to follow this image that I had created to fit my own agenda and just to make me feel better about myself? And if we pick back up the conversation of Nicodemus and Jesus, we see how Jesus responds to him. So this is verse 3. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What? Like, so Nicodemus is flattering and complimenting Jesus, and Jesus just goes straight to this. He doesn't respond. He doesn't react to what Nicodemus is saying. He just goes, takes the conversation exactly where he wants it to go. Jesus is essentially slapping Nicodemus in the face with this truth, and that's what he was doing with me. And that's when God started to pull me closer and closer to him and my story. And truly, I felt the relentless pursuit of his love for me. I finally started to understand and to respond what Jesus actually did on the cross in order for me to be redeemed. That's my favorite word for God is redeemer. My favorite rapper, Lecrae, has this awesome line that he says, he says, I'm not perfect, I'm just purchased. That's what redemption is. Redemption is this economic transaction between God and us. We know that the wages of sin is death, and we know that we have this free gift of grace, but we know that his grace isn't free. It was so expensive that Jesus had to pay for it himself. And how could I go and cheapen this grace by thinking that I could earn it back myself and that I could earn back my salvation? So there were two things that really helped shape and really helped strengthen my faith. The first thing was my Christian community of friends and family and my wife that I get to walk through life with. I've been friends with the same guys in high school um, since early on. These are the guys that have held me accountable, the guys that have challenged me, the guys that have loved me so much that they're willing to have these uncomfortable and sometimes difficult conversations with me. Just like in the book of Proverbs, it says, the wounds of a friend are faithful. When you walk with wise people, you will take wise steps. This is why I'm so passionate about our community here. We have these chapters or small groups that really is the lifeblood of our community. Number two is reading and taking the Bible seriously. God's word is incredible. It challenges me. It conflicts me. It comforts me. It confirms me. It's our conscience and our authority. If you're reading the Bible and you're not being moved for joy in the Lord, I would encourage you to join one of our discipleship groups. These are our Bible studies that we dive deep into the Bible and we look at it through the lens of Jesus. So we come back to the conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus. And this is where Jesus goes on to elaborate about newness and about change. So it's going to be verses 4 through 8. And this is right after Nicodemus' pretty reasonable, pretty sarcastic response. Verse 4. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. 
You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I love these verses 7 and 8. What we see is Jesus telling us that we are able to distinguish what becoming new or what changing really means. It's when we see lives moving. Lives are moving in such a way that we can't pinpoint exactly where they're coming from, but we can see it moving. We see something working. Sometimes God works in our lives even when we don't see him. Sometimes God works in our lives even when we don't want him to. Whether that's in your own life or in someone else's life, you can see something changing and moving. Newness comes from God through us just like the wind. It doesn't have to be instantaneous. Sometimes it can be a long, drawn-out process. But the wind is this invisible force with a visible change. Here's what it could be. It could be you being kind to a coworker who wronged you. That's the wind moving. It could be reconciliation or even forgiveness to that one person, maybe even that one family member who you feel like doesn't deserve it. That's the wind moving. It could be you simply, after everything else has let you down, pleading, crying out to God, please help me. That's the wind moving. It could be telling a friend what Jesus has done in your life. That's the wind moving. For some here today, it could be sitting in this church, singing to a God that you're not real sure about. That's the wind moving. Every single person in this room has had a New Year's resolution. We've all said the same variation of this. It's going to be a new year, new me, or this year is going to be different, or something along those lines. Don't lie, you've said them probably more than once. And what happens? We are trucking through the new year. We are hitting all our goals. We're cruising along. Second week in January comes, and we get thrown off, whether it's by work or friends or family or money or whatever it is, it just so quickly goes back to being any other year. It goes back to being the same old routine. We go back to being the same old people. I know I'm guilty of this way too often. In fact, this past year, I was going to start working out. I know, uphill battle, but don't get me wrong, I love to play sports, I love being outside, but CrossFit, spin class, not really my thing. I knew that how expensive or how time-consuming a gym can be, that probably wasn't going to be my plan either. So I decided I was going to set up this little space in my garage to start working out. I go to Academy. I buy the mats, the jump rope, the weights. I'm getting ready to go. I even have a buddy send me over the, his downloaded version um, of a workout. So if this story isn't embarrassing enough, I kid you not, I open up the workout and it says, the bikini body workout. Give you my word. So, but I'm committed. I'm going to do this. So I'm going to get this body in the best bikini body my wife has ever seen. So at first, I'm crushing workouts left and right. I'm cruising through. And then what happens? Life gets in the way. Whether that was working late, whether that was having friends over, or just commitments that we had um, at night, it just lost its luster. I slowly started to fall out of this new routine that I was so excited to start. Isn't this typically how it happens when we start new things or we commit to something new? Starts out great, we're motivated, we're excited, and then slowly it starts to lose its appeal and goes from exciting to ordinary. Isn't that how our faith is sometimes? If we're honest with ourselves, isn't that how we treat Jesus sometimes? 
So let's talk about some tangible steps we can take in order to become continuously new in Christ. So we're just going to go through these things quickly, and I will get you out of here. So I think that the best way to become new in Christ is to abide in Christ. And to abide in Christ means to live in Christ. I think that abiding in Christ is what makes us new because it's us in him, not necessarily him in us. The dominant theme of the New Testament, it's not necessarily us in him. We hear that five times. So we hear five times in the New Testament, Christ in you. But we hear us in him 164 times. It's us grafting into him, the true vine. It's us conforming to his ways, not him conforming to us. It's us changing to be like him, not him changing to be like us. So here are the three ways that we can abide and become new in Christ. So it's going to be prayer and repentance, trusting in him and the word, and finally, obedience. Prayer. If you have never said a prayer in your life, or if you are the biggest prayer warrior in the world, every single one of us can take one second out of our day, literally one second, and say, God, help us. Or God, thank you for today. Or even just opening up your Bible and praying through the Psalms. The Psalms are raw and authentic and honest. Even if you don't feel like it, or even if you don't think that it does anything, why not? Why don't we pray enough? It's because we have this perception that we control way too much of our lives. Charles Spurgeon, who is your favorite preacher's favorite preacher, once said, No man can give me a greater act of kindness than to pray for me. Prayer is one of the least things that we can do, but has the greatest impact. Many of us owe our saving grace to people that have prayed for us, whether it's our parents, whether it's teachers, pastors, friends, family, whoever. You know, one of the reasons that Jesus told us to pray, even for our enemies, it's to help us. I don't think that you can hate a person that you continually pray for. Have we actually, earnestly prayed for the people that we disagree with? Because I think that if we are earnestly praying for them, especially those who we disagree with, then we will have no other option to also pray for ourselves in order to sympathize and to understand others. It's just a natural, it's a beautiful progression that the Spirit does a work in us. Next time we feel ourselves wanting to complain or criticize something, let's stop and let's ask if, we pray, if we've prayed for it first in order that God can do a work in that and also do a work in us. That's how we can do, as the Apostle Paul says, to rejoice with those who rejoice, but also mourn with those who mourn. Our pride sometimes just gets in the way. So the question is, is are we prideful or are we prayerful? With prayer has to come repentance. We can't have new life without repentance. Repentance is turning away from sin, but we can't just be turning away from sin. We have to be moving towards something. So the question becomes, what are we moving towards? So hopefully we're turning away from sin, but we're turning toward loving and trusting and obeying and following Jesus. We also have to remember that his forgiveness, it's limitless. God can infinitely forgive everyone, always, and he already has. Because when we truly repent, that is the only way that we can turn and find God. And that's where we find our true and ultimate 
joy. Second is, secondly, is to trust in him and his word. Trust in God's grace and promise no matter our circumstance. In fact, we should trust him in the midst of our circumstance and trials before our breakthrough. Because most, most often, our breakthroughs become unexpectedly. That's how our God works. Even though it sometimes feels like our circumstances are hopeless in the moment, our biggest problem is not our circumstance. If anyone had reason to pray or ask God for a change in circumstance, it was the Apostle Paul. He was imprisoned. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was snake bit. He was stoned. He was persecuted. This is the guy that wrote the majority of the letters in the New Testament. But isn't it interesting that he never once asked for a change in his circumstance or a change in his friend's circumstances? He trusts God so much that he prays for what they really need. He prays for a new heart and a new mind. Because we know that once inevitably our circumstance changes, we will be left with a new heart that is refined and made new because of the season that we just walked through. And I'm not saying God causes every bad season in your life, but what I am saying is that God works through every season in your life. We know that God works for the good of those who follow him, right? We know, we know that not everything is for our good, but God works everything for our good. Sometimes we are 99% there with God. We are 99% there and we just have that 1% that just keeps following us around, that keeps nagging us, that won't let us go. I don't know what that 1% is for you today, but I do know that God fully knows you and he fully loves you. So can we please be a people that can admit that we're not perfect? We can admit that we're not perfect, but still admit that we want to be better. But let's also don't be afraid of changing because of the consequences or the repercussions. Let's embrace it, and then we'll see the fruit that it brings. Trusting him also means trusting in the Bible, and not just what people say about the Bible. It's so easy for us to sometimes take someone's opinions or their thoughts on the scriptures as the actual scriptures. But let's trust in the Bible and what was actually written and what the purpose it was intended for. Let's trust in that, not other people's version of it, not even our own version of it. That's what being a Christian is about. And that was the crossroads in my life. I was afraid that if I completely committed my life to Christ and followed him and trusted him, and loved him, that my life would be completely changed. And I didn't want that, but he did. Finally, obedience, and this is the word that got me. But obedience is not perfection. Obedience is being set free from sin and becoming a servant to righteousness. If you've been around Christianity for any period of time, you know that we've used these words, obedience and submission, for our own agenda way too many times. We've used them as almost a scare tactic. Obey him or else, submit to him or else. And I just think, unfortunately, we've just missed the mark. I think that God has always wanted obedience to look like something completely different from that. He doesn't want anything from you. He wants everything for you. And guess what? He gave us this perfect example of it when Jesus died on the cross in order that we might respond to and follow his example. The incredible thing about God putting on flesh, Emmanuel, is that he has walked in our shoes. 
He can empathize with us. He understands what we're going through more than we could ever realize with our problems, with our sufferings, with everything that we're going through. He understands, and that's why, and that's how he can comfort us. That's why and how he sets us free so we could choose to follow him and choose to obey him because that's the best thing for us. Coming into the new year, we all want a New Year's resolution, right? We all want to become better this new year or we all want to do something better or change something or find something or start something new. But I don't think that's how God works. God doesn't want a New Year's resolution. God wants to be your solution every day. He wants to be a new day solution. He tells us and he shows us that his mercies are new every single day. And that when we fall on January 7th, he's there to pick us up on January 8th because it's a new day. All God wants from us is to abide in him, to live in him. And he showed us how open his arms are for us when he spread them out on the cross. He died our death for us, but we know that that's not the end of the story. We know the grave is empty. We know that he has defeated death. He has overcame the grave, and he has this victory in his hands. And how much more open are they now so we can run to him, abide in him, live in him? That's when we feel God pulling us together. That's when we feel like we are walking closer to God. That's when we feel the sacrificial love of Jesus. That's when we feel like we are becoming new. That's the wind moving. Will you all pray with me? God, we thank you for who you are. God, for what you've done. God, we thank you for this past year. God, we thank you for the year ahead. God, we thank you for your hope. God, we thank you for your son. God, that he died our death for us. God, that we are able to abide, we are able to live in you. God, your grace and your mercy and your promises are true. And we believe in that. Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you that you're changing us, God, that you're making us new every day. God, I'm so thankful that I don't have to rely on myself. God, that I just won't cheapen the grace that you have given me by thinking that I can earn it back. God, let me realize how expensive that gift was by you being on the cross for me. God, we love you. We thank you for everything that you're doing in us, God, in this community. God, and how you're already working in 2019 for our good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.